Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, it's me, Amara Jones. Welcome to the Translash Podcast, a show where we tell trans stories to save trans lives. Well, December is a month when hundreds of thousands of people come to New York with grandma or parents or friends or themselves in order to see both the holiday lights and, of course, to indulge in a little bit of Broadway. Now, it's been a consequential few years for trans representation in theater. Earlier this year, Alex Newell and Jay Harrison Gee became the first non-binary performers to win Tony Awards. And last year, in 2022, Angelica Ross became the first trans woman to play a leading role on Broadway. And also, theater has always been an opportunity for exploration around gender by actors and audiences alike, even sometimes controversially. So today I wanted to chat with two people who are taking the theater world by storm. First, I'll talk with singer and actor Justin David Sullivan about their groundbreaking journey to Broadway and their brave decision to take themselves out of the running for a Tony Award. I felt like people just didn't know what to do with me. There was no space for me. There was no category for me to be in until there was. Next, I'm joined by artist and advocate Lady Dane Aditi to talk about the power of theater and the power of diversity in theater today. Because theater has attempted to position itself as somehow separate or somehow above the politics of the world, it has ignored its highest calling which is to be, in my opinion, at the forefront for social change. But before we get to these conversations, let's start, as always, with some trans joy. Trans, non-binary, and two-spirit artists have long been misrepresented and underpaid for their work in American theater. Breaking the Binary Theater, also known as BTB, is a New York-based work development and community building hub that's aiming to change that. Founder George Struss organized the first wildly successful Breaking the Binary Theater Festival in 2022, and they haven't slowed down since. In the past year, the group has produced 15 workshops, launched a summer educational intensive, and paid out over $145,000 to more than 150 trans theater artists. Overall, BTB is working to build an industry where all artists and employees are paid an equitable living wage. Here's their founder, artistic director George Struss, to tell us more. There's a play called Trans World by Ty Defoe that we've developed that is a very trans-centric piece, right? All of the characters in the piece are trans. We had, you know, an all-trans team. But we've also developed plays written by trans people that actually don't have trans characters in them, don't really have themes of gender. And I also think that there are 
members of our community that find a lot of trans joy in telling those stories, in being able to say to this industry, you don't only have to hire us on projects that have trans characters or trans themes. Like you, we are very complex individuals, and there are a lot of elements to us. BTB is serving as a vessel to empower our artists to really advocate for themselves in spaces that perhaps are not built with them in mind necessarily. But it also is a glimmer of hope that they know that a space like BTB can exist for them in the theater industry as well. George, you and Breaking the Binary Theater are trans joy. I'm so thrilled to be chatting with singer, actor, and artist Justin David Sullivan. She's currently making her Broadway debut in the pop hit musical And Juliet, which explores what would come if Juliet didn't die alongside Romeo in Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Justin plays Juliet's non-binary friend named May, that's my birthday month, singing pop classics like Britney Spears and Not Yet a Woman and Katy Perry's I Kissed a Girl. Justin started their musical career at age 15 with roles in Pippin, a very Potter musical and high school musical on stage. After college, he moved to New York City to pursue his dreams, performing in Sister Act at Lewis Family Playhouse, in the Heights at the El Camino Center for the Arts, and Spring Awakening at Urban Stages. Today, Justin's pushing to make more space for trans performers in the industry. They made headlines earlier this year after turning down consideration for a prestigious Tony Award because of the honors binary gender categories. In addition to being passionate about diversity in the performing arts, they are also an avid photographer, illustrator, and makeup artist. Just check out their Instagram. Justin, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to be here and chatting with you. Thank you. Thank you. We met in May. See, there's a consistent yes. thing here. Um, at uh, the Glisten Awards, where you were awarded for the courage that you displayed in your career. So I'm so thrilled to be sitting down with you. And, you know, you just shine so brightly. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. That's so kind. And it's so great to chat with you. I know that was such a whirlwind of a night, but it was so special. And I'm so glad that you got to be there and that we got to meet. And now that has brought us this moment, which I am even more excited for. That's right. That's right. Now, having met you in person, I would imagine, I'm taking a guess here, that musical theater was pouring out of you at an extremely young age. Like we said 15, but I'm imagining like single digits here. Is that the vibe that I give off? That's the vibe you give off. That's the vibe you give off. I can assure you. So is that right? When were you touched by this bug of needing to perform and to sing? Like, do you remember a time in your life when you didn't? Definitely not. It was like from the womb, I think. I am a self-proclaimed theater kid. And I think what really kind of halted my beginning was I just was never exposed to it. I grew up in a very conservative household and a conservative family. And I was also homeschooled 
from preschool to eighth grade. So while all the other kiddos were, you know, doing their school plays and stuff, I was at home learning Bible verses (laughs) with my siblings. You know, I had seen some of our church family friends in a show. I think it was Les Mis, I want to say. And I was pretty young, so I I didn't get it. But the first time I saw a show that I remember seeing it and being like, wow, this is exactly what I want to do, was my freshman year in high school. And I went to public high school. And so that is really where I got bit by the bug. And prior to that, you know, I had been such a huge fan of the high school musical movies. And that was really my gateway drug, I would say, (laughs) to the performing arts. Growing up, we didn't have a lot of money. So it's not like my parents were taking us to all the shows that were in town or anything like that. So I think even though it was always in me, and like the second I saw it, I knew that that was the thing that I was passionate about. It didn't find me until a little bit later in life. I mean, this corresponds to gender identity, but it's like so many other things. You know, the conversation is always around that society is pushing kids to be a certain way. And I think that you're a primary example of the way in which this works in a lot of areas, which is that you weren't exposed to any of this when you were a kid. This wasn't a part of your education. This wasn't really, you know, a part of the way that anyone had instructed you. But the minute that you saw this, it just resonated with who you were and you gravitated towards it, right? No one in your home pushed you into musical theater, right? In fact, the opposite. As soon as I expressed interest, they were like, ooh, that's, you know, a little girly or whatever. And I was actually discouraged from doing that, even though I had, like, wanted to do it so badly. And it was like this newfound hobby of mine. So I think you're exactly right. And it's just something I think when I think about the kid version of myself the purest version of that was always, you know, putting on shows in the backyard. Even just like when my little sister was born, um, we're five years apart, so she's five years younger than me. And I just remember when she was born, being so excited to have like a girl in the house, if that makes sense, like just to be able to play you know, house with her or dress up or dolls or whatever, and even just have access to like those kinds of toys. Like, I don't know. I think looking back at it was all so pure and it's all there. Like all of the, all of the receipts are there. (laughs) You can try to audit me, but I really, ever since I was a kid, this was me. And to get to live those dreams out now as an adult who has gone to therapy and healed from some of those things is really exciting. What did it feel like for you to take to the stage for the very first time in high school when you were finally kind of outside of this very conservative structure that you had been born into and grown up in? Like, Do you remember the first time you... You walked onto the stage? Oh my gosh, yes. I think that so much of my experience is, when I think about it, is is so cliche because I feel like the stereotypical high school theater kid, you know, the first time they're like in a school production, they find their family and they find a place where they belong and all of these like, you know, common tropes. But that's exactly what it felt like for me. Just being in a space with other people who liked musicals, who liked performing and putting on costumes and makeup. And there was this 
unbelievable spark. And in my first show, the first show I did was Little Shop of Horrors. There was like three different tiers of ensemble because it was like 60 kids in that production. And I was on the bottom tier of (laughs) of ensemble. So I was in the opening number, the 11 o'clock number, and the finale. That's it. I was on stage three times, probably for a total of like two and a half minutes. But even still, like, I gave my life in those two and a half minutes. (laughs) And I just found such a community. And that was, I think, that was the big kicker for me, was just to be around other individuals who were able to have that imagination to color the world in whatever way the story that we were telling was supposed to look like. And yeah, I think that really changed my life. Can you talk a little bit about this idea of community? And I'm wondering the relationship for you between theater and the ability to be able to express your gender identity more and more. When you came into theater, you had been raised, as you said, in a conservative household, learning Bible versus being homeschooled, very isolated and instructed very much in the gender binary. And so I'm wondering if when you entered this community Mm -hmm. of musical theater, were you shy at first and then felt liberated in it? How did it help you, if it did, become who you were with respect to gender expression? That is a fascinating question. And I don't think I've ever really sat down and asked myself that. You know, my relationship between my passion and gender identity I think, really, if I'm being honest and I'm looking back at it, I think, if anything, it maybe hindered my gender expression. When I was in high school, that was like, uh, starting musical theater, that was like 2012. We didn't really have like the same kinds of vocabulary or even understanding. I mean, I'm sure some people did, but I certainly did not as a high school student and beyond. I think... A big part of the reason why leaving high school, I decided to leave musical theater behind is because I felt like I had to fit this mold of what someone who's successful in musical theater looks like. And that just was never me, even though I loved it so much and I was so obsessed. I felt like I was definitely not masculine enough to play the leading man. So where did that leave me? And at the time, I was just grappling with my sexuality. And like, at the time, a queer man, I was like, there weren't a ton of amazing queer characters to look up to. So I really didn't see a a place for me. And beyond that, when I was in college and I fell back into musical theater, I was in LA and I was just working so hard, going to auditions every single weekend, taking class every week. I was in programs, I was in dance lessons, and I found that because of the way that musical theater had been in my experience and because of the way that Broadway looked to me at the time, I was still feeling a lot of pressure to fit into a mold, to fit into, you know, someone who had the range of, you know, obviously playing a queer character who was true to themselves. But, like, I think I was really trying to push for myself to be able to play 
characters that were not specifically queer, characters who, you know, were like the leading man type of roles. Like, I really thought that that was what I had to be in order to participate in musical theater, which is really sad. I hope a lot of people resonate with that because I don't think it's been until very recently that people can even see themselves in a show or in a character. And beyond that, like, it takes time for these kinds of big new shows and big new characters to, like, trickle down into community theater productions or, like, regional theater productions. So even still, like, I think change just takes a lot of time. So although the community of theater and, like, open-minded people and queer people and creative people did help me come into my non-binary trans identity, I think that the system and structure of musical theater as we know it actually discouraged me from doing that. Right, that makes total sense because like the the roles are highly gendered, the business is gendered, the business is very much centered on still appealing to straight audiences. Exactly. Mostly, so there's still, ironically, right, a lot of heteronormativity surrounding musical theater, which is itself very queer. So, I mean, that's the dynamic that you're talking about playing out. The other thing that I think is really interesting and really important about your story is that, you know, a lot of people think about, you know, oh, there's so much trans representation, et cetera, et cetera. But that's relatively new. I mean, here you are talking about being in high school just 10 years ago and Mm -hmm. they're not being possibility models and that sort of thing. And so we have to keep in mind that it's only for the youngest of young people right now where they're growing up in a world where they can turn on the television or go to a show and actually see someone who is trans. It's really a brand new thing and we forget that. Yes, I 100% agree. Even prior to you know, Broadway reopening, there were still no roles that I could see myself playing on Broadway and feeling like, yeah, that's totally it. I think I was still juggling between like, oh, like where do I submit myself? So I think it's so cool to be in a season where there are plenty of genderqueer artists who are out there, who are thriving, who are telling our stories. But also like when you look at how they got to where they were, there's still so much ambiguity. There's just so much still that we've all had to persevere to even get to this point. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. So I think it hasn't been as as easy as everyone maybe thinks it is or just simple as everyone thinks it is. I think it's been a very long and complicated journey for most of us. Yeah, well, it doesn't sound like it was easy at all. I mean, you've told us about coming in and out of being attached to musical theater, wrestling with gender identity within, and then ultimately coming into that. And even just a few years ago, not being able to see yourself in a role. Mm -hmm. But boy, has that changed. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It's very different now. So given this mindset that you had where you know, 2021, 2020, you were like, where where am I going to be able to express my gifts with, within this world that still very much is divided into these very definite ideas around gender? What was it like for you to get the call about Anne Juliet? Do you remember when they said, hey, there's this role, we want you to come in and audition for it? 
So <laughs> this is actually a very funny story. It's kind of a long story, but I feel like it's worth sharing probably mm. because even though this role and the show is, I think, like divinely and astrologically just perfectly destined for me to be in it. That was also a struggle. <laughs> mm. So I actually had a friend who saw the show in previews in the West End in 2019. In like London. They, the West in End London. In London. Yep. When they first opened and they were like, hey, Justin, there's the show. It's called Anne Juliet. It's brand new. Check it out. There's this role that I feel like would be perfect for you to play if it ever came to Broadway. The name is May. Just, just keep it on your radar. And so... I moved to New York. I hear rumblings that Anne Juliet is coming to Broadway, and I am meeting with my agents for the first time. This is before I'm even signed with them. And they're like, what kind of projects do you see yourself doing? And I was like, there's this show called Anne Juliet. There's this character named May, and I have to play it. Have to, have to, have to, no matter what. Like, that role is mine. And they're like, okay, great. And so I signed with them. A couple months go by, and I hear that they are casting in New York City. So I shoot up an email to my agents, and I'm like, hey, I hear that Angela is casting. I need to be seen for May. Like, how do I get in? And they come back to me saying that they already have their pool set for May. They're not looking for anybody else, but that they had the sides. So if I wanted to, I could film and submit them and see if that got us anywhere. But... Basically, they had seen me and they did not want any material from me. Hmm. So I was like, okay, fine, done and done. I learned the material, I film it the next day, send it in. And then I hear nothing for six months. Wow. So at that point, I kind of just was at peace with it. I was like, I sent it off into the universe. There's nothing more that I can do. And six months later, I get a call from my agent saying, that, you know, they went through all the rounds of auditions and callbacks for the character, but they haven't found what they were looking for and that they wanted more material for me. And it was in that moment that I was like, I am going to book this role no matter if it's the last thing I do. And so I sent in more material. It went great. Then I had an in-person callback and then ended up getting the part. And so for me, it was like, I need this. I need this so bad. And I never really gave up hope, even though I had been told no. I had been told that, you know, they were already done with their casting net. And even after they didn't respond to me for six months, I still had some hope. And so, yeah, I just think it was kind of one of those things where it was just written in the stars and it was my job to just show up and be relentless as as possible. And I think that's what it takes in this industry sometimes, especially when you're trying to break through. It just takes the consistency of showing up and wanting it so badly. And that's what I did, and, and it landed me here. What is your happiest moment playing May on the stage? Oh, gosh. There are so many moments, I think, that spark so much joy for me. It's hard not to. It's such like a joyful show. My favorite number to do is Show Me Love. And I think part of the reason why that is, is that is a number where I am like on the revolve, I'm on the little carriage spinning around, and I'm getting this incredible view of not only the entire 
audience in our theater, but everyone on stage is like performing inward. And I think I have found so much community, so much family in our cast that that moment I feel really lifted up and I feel really celebrated. And I like how that moment in the show is, um, you know, it's just May is going on the trip to Paris with their girlfriends and it's just something that I relate to is like that joy of connecting with your friends. And I don't know, I feel, I feel like that, that moment is special to me every night. I, I really enjoy doing that. I also love doing Kiss to Girl. I mean, that number is so really, really something special, I think, to see on Broadway. So it'd probably be a tie between those two. Clearly, whatever joy you are experiencing on stage is translating and translating in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, just the the play itself, right, is so innovative with, I think, over 30 numbers that were written by Max Martin, who's, even if people don't know who uh, Max is, has written songs that you sing all the time by Britney Spears or NSYNC or Katy Perry, and the list goes on and on and on. And so there was lots of Tony buzz around it this year. And when kind of that buzz was happening and reaching a crescendo, you decided to pull yourself out of consideration for a nomination because of the fact that the nominating categories are gendered. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you can talk about your decision to do so, because people need to understand that, you know, there's tremendous risk in that. I'm sure everyone around you was telling you that that was the absolute last thing you should be doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, when I look back at that time, it was the simplest decision that I could have made and also the most complicated for so many reasons. And just, I think as, as a true theater kid, being considered for a Tony Award is, is really the top of, of the dream list. And I was so excited to be in the original Broadway cast of something in a role that I think is really special and getting to showcase all of my gifts and, you know, everything that I have worked for. And it was just a a huge moment. And I remember when I found out that the Tonys weren't going to make any adjustments to the categories, despite there being multiple non-binary performers who were eligible that season. And like I said, it was just so simple because there's no excuse. There's no like reason for their to not have been space made. I'm a non-binary performer playing a non-binary principal role in a new Broadway musical. And I felt in that moment, like there was no where to put me. Like they didn't know what to do with me. And for so much of my musical theater career and experience, that is how I felt. I felt like people just didn't know what to do with me. There was no space for me. There was no category for me to be in until there was. And even in that, you know, getting to to tell my truth and live it on stage eight times a week, there still was just a big question mark. It was still like, well, we don't know what to tell you. Sorry, I guess. I didn't want anyone who 
is pursuing musical theater now, who's in college, anyone to come after me to ever be in that position again. Like, I never wanted anyone to feel like there were too much of this or not enough of this or like the world didn't know where to put them because it's very simple and it's very clear. So I thought in my head, if I don't take this for an answer, if I am not complacent in this, then maybe one day this might cause them to change their minds or to wake up, to realize that this is an issue and realize that this is not fair. And that was, in my heart, the right thing to do. And so that is why I made the decision. And it was, it was tough and it sucked for a lot of reasons, but I also, I also felt such an outpouring of love from the community and from other non-binary performers in the world. And I feel like it caused me to realize how many of us there really are out there. And that was really moving and, and inspirational to me. So, of course, Alex Newell and Jay Harrison Gee went on to win Tony Awards this year, both of whom are non-binary and or gender non-conforming. But of course, within gendered categories. And I'm wondering if there's a part of you that says, hmm, maybe I should have just gone along with it. Maybe I should have just accepted it and, and moved on. I don't know. I think for me and the person that like I am, and I think just my experience with theater specifically, like my trauma with theater. I just think that I did exactly what I was supposed to do. And I think if I hadn't gotten this part and I um, wasn't in this position, I think what I really took into account was like, if I was, you know, a bystander watching, like what would I hope someone would do in that scenario? And um that said, I am I am so thrilled and over the moon for both Alex and Jay. I think mm-hmm. it is so badass that they both took home such well-deserved awards that evening. And I think it's important to show the array. Mm-hmm. I think it's important and imperative that non-binary and gender non-conforming talent is recognized. So... At the same time, I think I'm so grateful that it was the three of us in one season because I think we really covered the bases there. And I think we showed the world that, you know, we're here and we're not we're not here to be messed with. And all people of color. And all people of color, too, which I, that makes it even better, I think. So um, I, I'm really proud. Well, one of the things I told you the night that we met was that I think that because of the stand that you took, that things are eventually going to change and that they're going to change faster because of what you did. I still believe that. Mm-hmm. That said, I'm wondering for you, aside from helping to hopefully push theater in a new direction by your action, what for you you hold as the highest vision for what you want to be and do in musical theater? Oh my God, what a question. (laughs) How am I supposed to respond to that? I don't know. Um, I I love musical theater so much. And I think if I had it completely my way 
and I was incredibly successful in my life, I would love to be a part of some real change. And I think that really starts from the top. That really starts from the producers, the people with money, um, the people with power, and how they choose to treat their incredible staff and um, creative team. And I think it would be my ideal dream to be a Broadway producer, producing some really cool trans musicals, some really incredible plays with creative teams that look like the people on stage and just people that really get it and people that really care about the art that that we're making. And to decommercialize Broadway in a way, to make art for the sake of of making art and for it to be beautiful and healing and mind-opening and world-changing, that would be my greatest hope of, of a musical theater career down the line, for sure. Well, we can't wait to see it. <laughs> Me either. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your life with us for this time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Amara. And thank you, everyone, for listening. That was singer, actor, and Broadway star, Justin David Sullivan. Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. It is a treat for me to be talking with artist, author, and advocate Lady Dane Figueroa Editi. From playwriting to choreography, Dane is a true Renaissance woman of the performing arts. In fact, she was recently nominated for her third Helen Hayes Award for her choreographic work in the Signature Theater's production of The Color Purple. Among her many roles, Dane co-founded and edited and directed the Black Trans Prayer Book and has also written for United Mockumentary Project and The 51st State. She is also the curator and associate producer of the Long Wharf's Theaters, Black Trans Women at the Center, an evening of short plays, which I have seen for two years in a row. Stepping out from behind the scenes, Dane has appeared in the King Esther series and the web series I Need Space. You may have heard her voice as the narrator for the Netflix docuseries Visions of Us and other work under her belt, such as for Black Trans Girls at New York's Public Theater. Dane's many other honors include the Princess Grace Honorary Award and a 2021 Helen Merrill Award. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, 
it's good to see you. <laughs> That's such the exact opposite when you have such an august biography. How are you doing today? I feel amazing. I feel amazing. I was just recently choreographing The Color Purple over at a Denver Center. Denver Denver Center. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that's my third production with uh, Timothy Douglas directing. And Mark Meadows did music direction here in D.C., but S. Renee did music direction in Denver. And it, the cast is amazing. It's great. I love choreographing that piece. I love doing our production of that piece. So, yeah, I feel great. I'm wondering for you, when did you know that the theater was calling you? Oh, I was young. I mean, you know, my mom would have said that I came out of the womb acting. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I think for me, I come from a very artist family, hmm. even for folks who did not do art as their profession. I have an Aunt Liz who I talk about often, my Aunt Liz Figueroa Bird. She was married to a man named Bill Bird. He was a piano player, jazz piano player, and she was a jazz singer. So she toured up and down the East Coast. She also was an academic. She was the first person that I know of to get a degree. And she also was an advocate. She was one of the first curators of the Great Blacks and Wax Museum. I believe that they still have a photo of her at the museum now, back in Baltimore. So, you know, she was an artist, an advocate, and an academic. I grew up singing. They say that my grandfather used to play at the speakeasies before he found Jesus. That's how they tell it. I don't know where he found him, honey, but he found him somewhere. I was about to uh, ask. <laughs> the fact that there was a doubt in your mind, uh, shares a lot. <laughs> so they, you know, they would sing at church and my mom and all of her siblings sang. So we grew up singing, listening to music. I talk often about the fact that my grandfather was not allowed to learn Spanish But something that we kept from Cuba was the music. So I grew up dancing, singing, laughing. And so at a very young age, I witnessed the ways in which art allowed for people to come together in community. It allowed for the witnessing of true emotional expression. And also it allowed for people to express their emotions, even when They would feel as if their voice was not being received. You know, I watched theater since I was a young child as well. We used to go to the Lyric Opera House when I was little. And I remember seeing, um, I got to see Stephanie Mills in The Waves, honey, at the Lyric Opera House when I was young. Um, And I still have that program from that musical. And it was so affirming. I saw Porgy and Bess which, you know, is an all-Black opera. And I got to see all of these amazing Black artists doing art. And it felt like for me, you know, I'm also a poet. I also am an author. I'm a playwright. I'm a singer. I'm a dancer. But it felt like theater was also a way for me to be able to work my art within a particular type of vocation, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's so interesting that that program was almost like a talisman, right? It was like a harbinger and a reminder for you very early on of where you would ultimately end up in a way. Absolutely. This issue of Erasure is one 
I'm wondering about with respect to your own experience, particularly in theater, you know, an art form which sees itself as apart from the other art forms in a very particular way, and one in which, you know, Black people have had a long association with theater, many groundbreaking performances and presence. Just this year, you know, we got, for the first time, theaters on Broadway named after Black people, James Earl Jones and Lena Horne, for the first time in 2020 in the last year. And I'm wondering for you how you experience and navigate, I would imagine, an even more intense form of potential erasure as being a Black trans woman within theater. Yeah, so what's so interesting to me is that I believe, right, that theater has attempted to position itself as somehow separate from the world, Mm -hmm. right? It is a place where you can go and you can spend however long you wish to creating imagined worlds and seeing them directly in front of you. Unlike in the movies, right, where there is another barrier of the screen, the imagined worlds that we experience in theater are right there. You could touch them if that's what the show is asking you to do. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, some shows, particularly like site-specific shows or shows in which the audience is immersed in the experience, you actually are a part of that imagined world. However, because theater has attempted to position itself as somehow separate or somehow above the politics of the world, Mm -hmm. it has ignored its highest calling, which is to be, in my opinion, at the forefront for social change. You know, theater has the power to actually teach the world how to imagine spaces of liberation, spaces of accountability, spaces of love now, today. Not just tomorrow, but today. However, theater as an industry, is different than theater as a community. And both of those things, theater as a community and theater as an industry, is influenced by those things that are outside of those particular spheres, which is the oppressive systems that are born out of colonization. What do I mean by that? I mean that if someone is patriarchal outside of the theatrical space, they bring that patriarchy into the space. If someone is racist outside of the theater space, they bring that into the space. However, as an art form that can be innovative, to actually teach people how to work actively, and not just the people who do the theater, but the people go to see it, how to actively work against racism, how to actively work against white supremacy, how to actively work against transphobia and homophobia and patriarchy, ableism, et cetera, et cetera, by extolling the virtues of dismantling those systematic oppressions internally as well as systematically. The theater industry doesn't always do that, but I think that it has the potential and the power to do that. Yeah, No, I also am just thinking about it within the context of, I mean, you mentioned like there's the business and there's the people, right? And the people and the business are not necessarily in the same space all the time with regards to where theater is and where it ought to be, Mm -hmm. which is really valid. And the the community is diverse, you know, the business maybe not so much and that there's like a, a tension and an interplay. But as a Black trans woman navigating this space, I'm wondering how you do so and continue to 
highlight the core of your work? Because one of the things that I think that if you look across the breadth of your work, and it is indeed broad, but one of the things that does stick out for me is the way in which you highlight kind of the everyday stories of Black trans women in a way that is artistic and theatrical. That is to say, elevating the value of these stories in really powerful ways. But you're doing so within this this system that we described. And I'm just wondering for you personally how you experience that navigation. I'm not saying this has to be everyone's journey, but I am saying that it was mine, right? There was a time in my life where I had to make a decision about certain roles that I would take or certain spaces that I would want to be in. And I made those decisions based off of my value system and about what I wanted to be seen as, as a artist. So, you know, I spoke up at certain times. I said no to certain gigs because those gigs would invest more in a system of codependence versus a system of liberation. And so what I mean by that is that like me saying no in all of those times in my youth have afforded a certain type of freedom and being able to say no to certain circumstances that do not align with my value system and or how I think power dynamics should operate within my work life. I was born in the ghettos of Baltimore, right? And one thing that I was told when I was young was when whoever make it out the hood, right, you you come back and you put folks on. You care about the community and you make sure that everybody got a seat at the table. Because the reason why you're here today is because your ancestors fought and died for you to be here today. And so... For me, it was always important that as I was crafting my where my career is now, that I learned how to stand up for myself, to invest in my value system, and to bring that value system into the space. Because ultimately, it is not important just to bring people to the table, right? But to make sure that this table is affirming. The stuff that I'm doing with Black trans women at the center, that's a vision that I had always had. You know, I had to utilize, (laughs) I had to utilize a certain way to get it, right? But that was something I had always wanted to do and something I had talked about earlier in my career, earlier when, you know, I chose to medically transition. But it's like now I have the backing of an institution to do that. And so as a Black trans woman... It was important for me to recognize that, like, one, I deserve to thrive. And then also the power of theater and then also my innate power and that we live in a colonized country, a colonized country that was built off of the stealing of land from indigenous ancestors and of an economy by Indigenous African ancestors, and that reparations was never paid. And so this country owes me something. It owes every Black trans person who lives in this country something. It owes every Black person and Indigenous person who live in this country something. And so I walk into spaces often recognizing that my presence in a space is a blessing. 
and that the institutions working with me are blessed by my presence. And that the absence of my presence, me taking away my presence from them, is a detriment to them, not to me. Well, I think that what's really important about that is that you literally gave us a roadmap for how you actually navigate spaces. The fact that you've been really intentional about which things you choose. The fact that you have visions, hold on to them for a really long time and look for opportunities to be able to elevate them. The fact that you don't look at it as if when a project is greenlit or you are asked to choreograph or you are asked to act in something, that that is something where they are shining on light on you. You look at it as you shining a light on them, which I think is a really powerful standpoint. And to believe that, you know, resource and resourcing is your gift and your birthright. And I think that all of those are really powerful individually, but together are, I think, an important illumination for how to navigate these really tricky spaces. Yeah, yeah. And it's and it's not that I don't learn things, right? Mm-hmm. Being in those spaces, because I do. I learn a lot. However, I must also always honor my worth. Always. And have a vision, right? And have a vision for tomorrow. Asking yourself, why are you in this space at this moment? Mm-hmm. And what will be born from this? Within all of this, all of the navigation, all of the complexity of being Black and trans in America at this particular moment, one of the curiosities I have is how you preserve your creativity. Mm. How do you hold on to the energy that spawns your ideas and the things that you want to pull forward in the world? Yeah. Oh, uh, that's such a, I mean, it's not a big question, but it feels like a big question. Mm-hmm. I always tell people like, you know, mentees or students of mine or people who take workshops with me, creative writing workshops, to recognize when the story is asking for you to witness and recognize when the story is asking for you to write. I think that we often speak about artists in the sense of production, meaning like, okay, you've written the book and so now you're a real artist, right? But so much of art is also listening, observing, witnessing, thinking. Thinking. Sometimes about your own life. Sometimes about the lives of people who you love. Sometimes about the lives of people who have passed on. Sometimes about the life that you want and sometimes about the world that you want when you are, when your bones have returned to the earth and your spirit has returned to God, right? I recognize that like I have the gift of creation, period. But that creation itself sometimes is asking for witnessing, And when I'm talking about creation, when I say witness, I'm not just talking about the the witnessing outside of your head, outside of yourself, right? (laughs) Outside of your own life. I'm talking about the witnessing within yourself. There are times when, you know, there's this story that I have, honey, that I have been thinking about this story for almost 10 years. 
And I went to go write this story. And for some reason, the story wasn't, it wasn't quite wanting to be written down yet. And those characters said to me, they said, you don't know us well enough yet. Just observe a little longer. And while you're observing, go write your other stuff. (laughs) And these characters, these sisters from this particular book, and you know, that ancestor and and these sisters and their mother and, and the protagonist of that story, honey, they still live in their adventures. And I'm still witnessing them as I'm writing other things. And so I think for me, it's a matter of recognizing that we are all always in a state of creation. Regardless of whether or not you are actively producing or not. Yeah. Right, you're still creating. And I think that that's one of the things that I think is so powerful about the vision that you gave us about how you hold on to your creativity. Because what you essentially said is, I don't feel that I have to do all the time. That a part of my job is to sometimes not do, and it's to listen and to observe and to be guided. And I think that a lot of people feel, a lot of artists feel, do feel the pressure to, quote, produce all the time and to be productive and to be seen as generating stuff, right? But that generating stuff helps provide the source material so that other people can sell and make money, right? Which is why they want you to produce all the time. But I think that one of the things you're saying is that a part of my job is to listen, is to be still. And that means that you also have space for regeneration. And that's something that artists are not encouraged to do often. Right. And there's also so much research that goes into, I mean, you know, I'm not speaking Mm. for every artist when I say this, right? You know, I happen to write a lot of works that are examining the past so that we can have a more liberated future. And so I know that like not everybody's like studying the state of what were Black trans women doing in the 1800s, right? Like I know everyone's not studying that or reading about that or researching that, but I am. So some of those moments too is about like sitting down and researching and reading a book. Lastly, out of all the work that you do, and are going to do. One area that I want to ask you about is your, and it's something that we share in common, but attachment to fascination with comics <laughs> and specifically Marvel and the MCU. I just realized I was like, there's actually a tie in Amara to this question because in one Marvel Universe series, there's actually a play of Marvel on Broadway. Yeah. So <laughs> this this actually does connect, listeners. It, it actually does connect. But what I am wondering for you is, in the realm of comic books and what Lady Dane herself would do and write in the MCU... What do you think is the way that a Black transvision for the approach to creativity, how could that change the way that the MCU unfolds, the way that comics unfold? What is the thing they're missing by not having people like you at the center of that creative process? Yeah. So, you know, I I grew up reading comic books, right? X-Men, Justice League, mm-hmm. Avengers, Fantastic Four. I remember the first type of comics that I read, I found them in a closet 
in my apartment growing up. Oh, yes, I remember. And I remember seeing Storm for the first time. I was a little kid. And there was this beautiful Black woman who was African with this white hair and these these powers to connect to nature in the, in the world outside of comics. The title of Mutants was just invoked in a anti-trans rant that a... State legislature made. Yeah. Without recognizing, right, how amazing and powerful and innately magical and mystical and 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 gifted mutants are. I just wrote a whole long post about it on Instagram. But I you know, I think that that connects to the role that trans people often took up in indigenous communities around the globe pre-colonization and even now, right? Trans folks, there are stories, countless stories of the creation of trans people by, you know, powerful gods and goddesses and the great spirit. And oftentimes in those stories, trans people have gifts, innately magical gifts and the ability to transverse the underworld and come back alive because of who they are, because of their transness. And so I think a lot about, you know, the work that I do with the Black Trans Prayer Book as as a co-founder along with Jay Mesa III. And a lot of that work is about teaching, uh, instructing, honoring, frameworks, theologies, ideologies of healing and affirmation and divinity for Black trans people that are rooted in history. I think that as far as comics are concerned, well, you know, anybody who want to read, you know, some kind of witchy series about trans people, I wrote, you know, the Ghetto Goddess series, and that is um, a trilogy of books about a Black trans mother in Baltimore and her Black trans daughter, and they're both powerful witches. But I think that Marvel could benefit, right, from having more, particularly Black trans people, writing works for them, because there is an expansive way that we think about the world when we are truly liberated and, and are experiencing ourselves outside of, outside of cis frameworks that I think can be so beneficial for the imagining of the future especially for mutants. But I do think that there is a way for us to think about the expansiveness of of powers and mutanthood in the world. I mean, I wrote about this on Twitter and I've already said it to Marvel, so this isn't me like giving away any information. But I said, I thought about the birth of Nightcrawler, for example, in the MCU and how, you know, the original thought for... Nightcrawler is that Destiny and Mystique were going to be Nightcrawler's biological parents. So I said, you know, I had tweeted Marvel. This was years ago. Mystique is a shapeshifter. Uh, She was played by Rebecca Romaine in the Fox X-Men universe. Uh, She's a shapeshifter. She's long-lived. And Destiny is her wife, who she loves very, very much. And Destiny... She's a blind seer. So she is someone who can see the future and basically is now one of the, like, she's on the Quiet Council of Kokoa and is is trying to lead the mutants to a place of uh, their best destiny, essentially. So I thought, right, I said, oh, I, you know, I tweeted Marvel and I said, oh, Marvel, why don't you actually have Destiny be a trans woman 
right? And that her and Mystique will be the biological parents of Nightcrawler. I said how you could introduce Destiny into the MCU is that you could actually, by her being trans, you can connect her to the history of like trans people all the way back to the beginning of the MCU. That would connect her to the Eternals. It would connect her to Doctor Strange as well, because maybe an ancestor of hers was a trans woman who tapped into being able to witness the future via magic and her transness, right? Like maybe she comes out of the story of, maybe she is the trans woman who saved the goddess Anana doing Sumar. And so Destiny is a a descendant of hers. Things like that, right? Things like, (laughs) like who would have ever thought about that? Who would have thought about connecting Destiny both to Doctor Strange and the MCU to stories of actual trans people within history and also honoring the original intent of Nightcrawler's birth and keeping her married to Mystique. I don't know if they're going to do that in the MCU. (laughs) But I think it's something I think about and I thought about and I tweeted to them, you know, I think it will work, but I do think that they would probably need trans folks in the writer's room in order to really, really honor it the way it needs to be honored. Well, first of all, I think you've given everyone a reason to go buy the Ghetto Goddess series. <laughs> that's that's one thing that comes out of this. And I think that the reason why I asked the question is that, you know, often the way that we would approach kind of things that we ideate or think about is the way that we approach actual things. And I think that everything that you said about the power of the creative vision that Black trans people have, and in this case, the way in which it would benefit the MCU, is actually just something that you do throughout your work. And that's why I'm just so gratified that you took the time to talk with us today, that you take the time to continue to create in so many different media with such confidence and such bravery and the way in which you mentor so many people who are Black and trans and creatives. For all those reasons, I just want to thank you and celebrate you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your podcast. You know, I love your podcast and I love, you know, I I really think that the work that you do is super important. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for having me on and for us to talk about, right, future visioning and our innate power to do that as Black trans people. Yes, honey, listen, we shall overcome and not only shall we overcome, but we are going to thrive. That was Lady Dane Figueroa Editi, creative person extraordinaire. Thank you for joining me on the Translash podcast. Now listen all the way through to the end of the show for something extra. If you like what you heard, please go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us. You can listen to Translash wherever you get your podcast. Check us out on the web at translash.org to sign up for our weekly newsletter. Follow us on X, we'll see for how much longer, and Instagram at Translash Media. Like us on Facebook and tell your friends. The Translash Podcast is produced by Translash Media. The Translash team includes Oliver Ashkline and Aubrey Calloway. 
Xander Adams is a contributing producer to the show and our sound engineer. Brennan Beckwith is our social media producer and digital strategy is handled by Daniela Capistrano. The music you heard was composed by Ben Draghi and also courtesy of ZCK Records. The Translash podcast is made possible by the support of foundations and listeners like you. Well, what am I looking forward to now? Holiday party time. We haven't really been able to do that for several years. And so it will be a fun time. Now, sometimes it can be exhausting. I don't think it's like it was before where it was like, you know, all the all the time. But, you know, two or three make the season fun. Like it's a time to see people that I don't normally get to see and to have a good time. So here's to a few, just a few holiday parties. Oh, and remember to shop trans for the holidays. Go to the Translash website, find that link, and see who you might want to buy some gifts from. Help support our community.